Welcome to 10MinuteTech.com. I'm Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and I'm very excited to be presenting this special episode, which is part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival 2021. The theme of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival this year is contending with misinformation in the community in the classroom. And really, this theme could not be more timely. Misinformation has been with humanity for a long time, but it seems like with the 2020 election and the COVID-19 pandemic, along with some new technologies that have allowed misinformation to spread quickly, that things have gotten worse than ever. The Podcast Carnival includes several rhetoric and rhetoric-adjacent podcasts all tackling the same topic, and I encourage you to check out as many of them as you can. For this podcast episode, I'm presenting three experts who study misinformation, why we're so bad at identifying misinformation, and what we might be able to do about it. Let me introduce our first guest. I'm Sarah Yeo, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah. I talk with Dr. Yeo about why people struggle to identify misinformation and how we can communicate it more clearly, especially when we consider the roles of emotion and humor in countering misinformation. I hope you enjoy that interview, and following that, I'll also have interviews with Letitia Bodie and Miriam Malecki, two other smart scholars who deal with misinformation. So stay tuned, please, for all three interviews. And before we got too far into the show, I wanted to thank Dr. Charles Woods of the Big Rhetorical Podcast for putting this whole carnival together. Sarah, I'm really glad that you're joining us on the podcast today. Really enjoyed reading some of your recent work. And you've got a recent paper, and it's a lot about information miscommunication. But one of the things you point out at the beginning of the paper is that people are just not that great at identifying misinformation. So what are some of our limitations when we're trying to identify misinformation ourselves? So in the paper, I've broken down our limitations in identifying misinformation to sort of two broad categories, ability and motivation. In terms of ability, we have things like media literacy or science literacy. Right. And we know from sort of ongoing research and, and data that we've collected over time, at least about science literacy, as Americans, American adults, that amount of science literacy that we have has been quite stagnant over the decades. So it's quite constant how much we know about science. And these are typically measured by asking people true-false questions about basic science facts, questions, for example, like, it is the father's gene that determines the sex of the baby, true or false. Right? And so these types of questions are how we have measured science literacy over time. And what we know is that science literacy among adult Americans tends to be quite stable. The other thing is, is about media literacy, right? digital media literacy, especially since a lot of science news is online. Some of these are, are quite limited for us. Our ability in terms of media literacy and science literacy is quite limited. So those are some of the things that limit our ability to identify misinformation. Other things include structural constraints, right? This idea that there are fewer and fewer places for traditional science journalism, as well as an increasing prevalence of news deserts, right? Communities that simply don't have local news, for example. The other thing is motivation. Right. In general, a lot of research in, in, in the basic science of human cognition 
shows that we have a high reliance on sort of these mental shortcuts, right? We use it to filter information. We get so much information online now. There has to be some way to quickly filter this kind of information. And of course, you can see how this is also related to media literacy, right? Digital media literacy, the kind of ability to navigate information online. So we use these mental shortcuts or, or what we, we call heuristics to filter information. And we also use it to evaluate new information. So we use these shortcuts to, to make sense of new information. And these are the kinds of things that tend to limit our ability to identify incorrect information or inaccurate information. So if I'm using a heuristic to evaluate information, it's basically like a shortcut. So I might say, you know, oh, this sounds true. So I'm going to share it or my friend shared this. So it must be good. Are these the kinds of heuristics that you're talking about? Yes, exactly. So the, the example about your friend is great, right? Because this is someone perhaps you trust. And so now you're trusting them to be sharing accurate information with you. And you might use that as a shortcut to say, well, this information must be accurate because it's shared by this person that I like. We know that communicator likability is very important um, in terms of persuasion, right? And so then you might reshare that. Well, and it's a lot of work to confirm. So if I get an article that, or I get someone sharing something about, say, a new study about uh, hydroxychloroquine. Well, if I wanted to fact check it, I would have to like download the paper and read the paper. I mean, it's a lot of work to like fact check these things, right? Is that part of what you're saying is people just aren't motivated to do that? Absolutely. And, and simply, we, we simply don't have time to do that, right? These mental shortcuts are a normal part of human cognition. They're probably an evolutionary part of human cognition. You can imagine trying to make quick decisions, right? We use some shortcuts. And a lot of these decisions that we make tend to turn out to be the ones that work for us, that are correct, that are accurate, perhaps. A very sort of banal example is, you know, you go to the grocery store and you look for toothpaste and you decide what toothpaste to get. And that's probably based on some sort of shortcut right? Because we're not going to rationally weigh the pros and cons of every single brand and type of toothpaste we see. Right. It just, and that doesn't make any sense, right? We just, I pick this toothpaste, I get on with my life and people are kind of doing sort of the same thing with information they encounter online. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Interesting. So we've got sort of some hurdles when it comes to people identifying misinformation. Also, you said that the American science literacy is stable. Is it like, fairly low or is it kind of in the middle? Like what is the actual level of science literacy that people tend to find? It's very much in the middle. So the way we ask these questions, we ask nine, generally about nine-ish questions, true or false questions. And, you know, the average American tends to get about four and a half, five out of nine correct. But remember, these are, these are true, false questions. Now I'm wondering how I would do on this test. I need to take it and see what my science literacy level is. Yes, and this is this is a really great point actually because these are kind of questions about science fact. There are some kind of different questions about the processes of science, right? And and, and the scientific endeavor in general and scientific inquiry, but the questions that tend to be used are the ones that are true false about science fact. Things that you have learned, you know, in middle school. And so, you know, some of these things we don't remember. Right, right. It's, it was, you know, something I learned for a test in ninth grade, and I probably have forgotten at this point. You bring up the issue about understanding the processes of science. So I'm wondering if that's related, because I think, you know, science is very complicated. And one of sort of the folk ideas is like, well, scientists, they figure out something and they know it. But I think you saw this a lot with COVID, where it was like, 
Well, we think the masks are useful. It appears that they are useful based on this data set. Or we changed our mind and this treatment looks like it's good when it wasn't before. And all that is kind of the normal process of science. But that might be kind of perplexing to people who aren't steeped in sort of that complexity. Do you see that coming across? Yes. So this kind of complexity of sciences reflected in the complexity of the concept of science literacy. Right. So so in science literacy, you can think of these facts, knowing facts about science as one type of literacy, but also knowing about the process of science as a different type of literacy. And does that get measured as well? It gets measured in some ways, some aspects of the whole concept get get measured. It's actually it's actually quite complex, like most things in science are, right? They're a lot more complex than they seem. But the measurement of science literacy, because you can break it down into its different dimensions, you can measure these various dimensions. And we don't always do that, right? Because what happens is when we collect these data, the survey questions are inserted into a larger survey and you can't spend 15 minutes on science literacy, for example. Right. Yeah. So the measurement of people's understanding of the complexity of science is itself a complex measure, it sounds like. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into some of the strategies. We've got a misinformation problem. We've got people who, for various reasons, may struggle to identify misinformation online. So you've looked at some of the ways to sort of strategically counter this. One of them is thinking about the role of emotion. So what kinds of emotional appeals or connections with people's emotions can help kind of change the way they process misinformation? Yeah, so my work on emotion has sort of looked at understanding how emotion influences how we feel about various scientific issues. And we've done a lot of this in health communication, for example, right? I personally don't um, study health issues generally, even though there is overlap, of course, with science communication. I tend to study issues that are more in the realm of sort of basic sciences or environments. So for example, I have Uh, some research on disgust that shows in the context of microbiomes, right? This idea that if somebody sees an article that sort of elicits disgust around microbes and microbiomes, then they are, they find that particular scientific issue more risky. They perceive that issue as more risky. Yeah. So if you have sort of a disgust response to something, you're going to see maybe it is more like of a, of a risky endeavor. Is that it? Yes. And and these are natural, right? These are, again, evolutionary. The idea of disgust as a, a response that we have evolved to warn us away from pathogenicity, for example, right? And so what comes along with these emotions are these sort of action tendencies or action motivations, right? We feel these either kind of approach tendencies or avoidance tendencies. So with disgust, as you might guess, it's sort of an avoidance tendency. If I feel disgusted by something, I am more likely to avoid that thing. And at least in our research, we found that kind of translates into perceiving a particular scientific issue as more risky. And I'm guessing some of this is probably on a level that people don't even quite realize is happening, right? This sort of disgust response. Absolutely. A lot of this is sort of unconscious, right? It's sort of part of our human programming, you might say. You're showing that sort of disgust, eliciting disgust may make people a little more wary of a scientific topic. Is there a strategy for communication to kind of counter that effect or or undo that effect? Yeah, I think, I mean, once we understand the effect of a particular emotion, then we can come up with strategies that maybe avoid that, right? So that's kind of the brunt of that research. But more recently, I've been getting into looking at how we can use humor 
which is something that we use every day, um, how we can use humor to communicate science. Great. So what kinds of findings or uh, ideas have you explored there? Well, in the humor literature, there's many types of humor. And so I have specifically, my, my research team and I have done work on various types of humor. And we started with what we're calling benign forms of humor, things that are not targeted at someone, right? Because humor, you can consider humor as a form of social control, for example. You can use it to make an in-group and an out-group, right? So if you and I share a joke and we both get a joke, we're in the in-group and somebody else is left out of that. And there's also, you know, targeting with jokes and and, and humor, right? You can make a joke about somebody. Somebody is the target of that humor or some institution is the target of that humor. And so we are just getting into looking at that type of humor. But what we started with, again, is more is this these more benign forms of humor. So things like anthropomorphism, which is given human characteristics, right, to inanimate things or, or non-human things. So a good example is selfie. Have you seen the meme selfie? There's a cell taking a picture of itself. So that's, that's an example of anthropomorphism. It's also an example of the other type of humor that we've used, wordplay. So a lot of science humor we found involves puns, right? Plays on words. And so when we look at these types of benign humor, anthropomorphism and wordplay, what we find is that if you have that kind of humor in your in your communications about a particular issue, and again, this issue that we used is something that is not controversial. If you have those types of humor, it can encourage people to engage with that issue or that science or engage with science more on social media. Um, it also kind of humanizes, humor in general humanizes a communicator, right? So anecdotally, what I often hear is that, well, you know, scientists aren't very warm. They don't seem very caring. They're not perceived as particularly likable relative to some other communicators. And using humor, you know, perhaps can make that scientist seem warmer, right? It, it has a humanizing effect. So when you test these things, are so sel selfie, for example, is it attached to, like in the experimental condition, a particular like scientist making the joke? Or is it an organization that's making a joke? Like who, who is presented as the communicator in the tests? Yeah, so in our experiment, we have a scientist as the communicator. Uh, and we try, you know, for kind of experimental purposes, we try to keep that sort of gender neutral. We try to pick a name that could be ambiguous. We use the same image, for example. You also can't quite see the platform we used was Twitter. So we put these jokes on Twitter and we ascribe the joke to a scientist and you can't really see the image that well, right? It looks like a person in a white lab coat, but you can't quite tell identity of that person. So you've got sort of this speaker who is a sort of a generic scientist and you're seeing, you know, does the humor encourage more warmth and humanity towards the person that's, that's communicating the science. Is that right? Yeah. So perceived likability of the communicator. Yeah. So you've got this sort of um, baseline data of this humor kind of humanizing uh, speakers and scientists. What are some of the implications potentially for the way that people approach misinformation and the way that humor can help people kind of understand or react to misinformation in a more positive way? So there's some research that shows humor-based corrections can be potentially effective for correcting misinformation and reducing misperceptions. But my research tends to focus more on what strategies can communicators use. And so I, I try to think of this as translational science communication research. And so Understanding the effect of humor allows us to say, well, maybe this is a 
this is a good way to communicate this particular issue. And of course, things are going to be different, right? The way you communicate something is going to be different depending on the issue, depending on your audience. And so hopefully my research tries to provide some insight into those things. And that's where I see the potential to tackle this misinformation problem, right? If we can produce good communications around science that are effective, right, for achieving whatever goal that communicator has, then I think that is how one way of combating misinformation does. It's not about correcting the misinformation. It's about correct. It's about communicating the information correctly in the first place is where my research is. Right. So you're really trying to get it right the first time so that the misinformation doesn't occur. Correct. Because misperceptions are, they're long lasting, right? They're persistent. Misinformation is quite persistent. So it's much easier to get it right than to correct misinformation later. Correct. And I think there's space for all of these. Tackling this misinformation problem is going to be a multi-pronged require a multi-pronged solution, right? So correcting misperceptions is one part of this, but getting the kind of strategies right in the first place is another part of this. Great. Well, this is really interesting. I really enjoy hearing about your research and kind of the things you found and kind of the ways that we might be able to apply it to the problem of information. Are there other strategies that you think might be helpful that we haven't covered? As always, there's not just two ways, two remedies to any problem, right? And so in this problem of science misinformation, it's not just about correction of misperceptions, and it's not just about communicating science strategically. It's also all these other things that we've talked about. So we talked about structural constraints on our ability to detect misinformation, right? And, and there are far brighter minds than mine working on this issue of how do we prevent these structural constraints, right? Or how do we at least overcome them. There's also issues of technology in this case. You know, what is the responsibility of technology and tech companies in the spread of misinformation or curbing the spread of misinformation? And so I think, again, this is a very multi-pronged, it's a thorny problem that requires many solutions to tackle. And the communication piece is an important part, but it's one part. Yeah, it is. It's a big problem. And I appreciate kind of the way that you're looking at a particular dimension to see if there's a remedy there to part of this problem. I think that what you're working on is really interesting. Thank you. And hey, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you about the work you're doing. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Yeo. For my next guest, I brought in someone else who's also spent a really long time studying the effects of misinformation. I'm Letitia Bodie. I am a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor at Georgetown University, and I study primarily political communication and health communication. Most of my most recent work is in the realm of misinformation on social media and what we can do about it. I talk with Dr. Bodie about the definitions of misinformation, some best practices for correcting misinformation online, and why it's worthwhile to correct misinformation when you see it online, even though it doesn't always feel like it. I hope you enjoy this interview as well. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really glad to have you on the show today. And I wanted to just start by having you define misinformation. A lot of your articles do that. And it's a term, misinformation, that gets thrown around a lot, means a lot of things to different people. So to you, what is the definition of misinformation? So we take kind of a classic interpretation of misinformation, which goes back to kind of what I would say is one of the formative works in political communication with regard to misinformation, written by Nyhan and Reifler. 
And they define misinformation as when people's beliefs about factual matters are not supported by clear evidence and expert opinion. So there are kind of two elements to that. Well, there are several elements to that, but the two that I want to emphasize are number one, expertise, and number two, evidence. So the way that we talk about defining misinformation is based on those two criteria. Are there experts that agree on what the state of the evidence is and is the evidence clear? What we found as we've done this research and, you know, look for good, quote unquote, good misinformation topics to look at is that there are actually not that many issues for which there is really clear expert consensus and clear evidence. So we kind of divide issues into three tiers, the top tier, the kind of clearest type of topics for which there is like clearly misinformation versus accurate information are what we called settled science. But then most issues actually fall into emerging science or controversial science. So especially when you go outside of the like kind of health and medicine realm, when you start to get into political realm, but even within health and medicine, um, a lot of issues either don't have enough evidence yet to, to kind of generate that expert consensus, or there's disagreement about either what the evidence says or even who gets to decide what the appropriate evidence to look at is. So if you can't even decide on what an expert is, it's really hard to decide what's true and what's not true. Well, that's really interesting because I'm guessing kind of what you're saying is, you know, we have those issues where the misinformation is just very clearly misinformation, maybe flat earthers or something like that. But then you've got situations where well, it's it's tough because, you know, maybe the evidence doesn't all point the same direction or we don't quite have clear answers yet. Is that kind of what's going on with that sort of middle tier of misinformation? Yeah, exactly. So thank you for, for giving some examples, which I should have done originally. Flat Earth is a great example of something where it's really clear what is true and what is not true. Kind of vaccinations, right? Vaccinations go through a very rigorous process. We know that they're effective. We know that they're safe. That's a very clear example where there is um, clear consensus. Man-made climate change and things like that all kind of fall into that top tier. And those are a lot of the issues that we think about when we think about misinformation. But there are actually a ton of issues that we kind of you know, think might be misinformation or kind of think of as misinformation, but the evidence is not as clear cut or it's still being determined. The further you go away from science, the more likely it is to be more controversial. So like when you start to get at questions of like, you know, what is an economic stimulus going to do to the economy or what happens if we cut taxes? There is science on that. Um, it's not that we don't have any evidence. It's just much less straightforward to uh, interpret in those kinds of situations. Well, and I imagine in those kinds of situations, there are claims that can be made that are demonstrably false. And then there are a lot of claims where, well, we're not quite sure if they're wrong or not. We don't have enough information. And then that may fuel some of the skepticism of, well, I guess any claim is as good as any other. Or, well, I guess since we don't know the truth, we can say whatever we want. Do you see those kinds of problems driven by uncertainty? Absolutely. And that's um, so there's an organization called First Draft News that calls this the idea of a data deficit. So there's like more people that want information than there is reliable information that exists. And when you have those high kind of high levels of uncertainty, people do a lot of information seeking. But if there's not credible information for them to find, then they're going to be more persuaded by misinformation because they're looking for something, right? They need some kind of information to answer the questions that they have. So you have a generous take here because what you're saying is that there are a lot of people who 
you know, if you're not a misinformation troll from Russia or whatever who's trying to fool people, we have a lot of people online who genuinely want accurate information and seek that out, but they are often misled by the information that they find. Is that what you're seeing here? Absolutely. So I, I think it's two things. People want information. And if there isn't good information, they'll take bad information. And number two, we all, all of us have biases that influence the types of information that are most persuasive to us. So things that validate my existence or my identity or make me feel better about the choices that I've made in my life are going to be easier for me to accept as compared to those that invalidate me as a person or as, as a, you know, baseball fan or whatever the thing is, whatever the identity is that's meaningful to me, things that challenge that I'm going to be more critical of psychologically. I'm going to ask more questions about them. I'm going to be kind of, you know, harder on them when I'm evaluating them. So I think it's, it's those two things that people want information, there's not always good information. And also, I'm more willing to accept information that kind of agrees with my previous viewpoints. And when we're thinking about that from a political standpoint, you know, that's really easy to understand that if I'm on one side of the aisle, and there's a piece of misinformation that makes my side of the aisle look really good, that's, that's really easy for me to accept that misinformation, or at least be less critical of it. You brought up two things here, and that credible information involves expertise and evidence. But as you're saying, and as we see, even those things involve some interpretation about what counts as an expert, what counts as credible evidence. How does that play into misinformation? Yeah, so I think I literally wrote an entire article on this subject because I think it is a huge challenge. And it's one that we don't talk about enough. I think a lot of times misinformation researchers do choose the more straightforward pieces of misinformation. So there's a ton of misinformation work on climate change, for example, because that's kind of a black and white issue. It's really easy. It's uh, complicated for other reasons because it's become increasingly politicized. But there's all of this gray area that really does make it difficult to decide. The other element that comes in is things are changing all the time. So I've done several studies now where we had a statement that when we fielded it, we counted it as misinformation. And then new information came out later. And we we're like, Oh, actually, it seems like that was right. And how do you count that, right? Are the people that said they believed that was true? But at the time, there wasn't good evidence for it. Do we count that as misinformation? Do we count that as accurate information? Do we just throw those people out entirely because we don't know what to do with them? It's really complicated. And what we say is, you know, there's not a clear way to do this well or, you know, even to do it poorly. What I think needs to happen is, is as much transparency about how you're choosing these issues and how you're defining them as possible. So what do you count as an expert? What do you count as expert consensus? You know, does it have to be over a certain threshold? Where are you getting that information from in terms of what scientists actually think about this? What scientists do we count? You know, if we're talking about climate change, do we only count climate scientists? Or if you are any kind of science PhD, does that count? Or any kind of science educator, does that count? You know, like, where do we draw that line? And again, there's not a right or a wrong answer. But the more information you can give to whatever your audience is that's reading about this, then they can make a decision for themselves about, you know, what kinds of expertise and evidence we have on this subject. Well, yeah, and that's interesting because you mentioned climate science. I actually had, I wrote something that had me sort of run in with climate change skeptics or deniers or whatever term you want to use a couple of years ago. And what I found was it appears to me that they are very convinced that their evidence and their experts 
are the right ones, you know, and that everyone else is sort of being lied to and they're the ones who are having the wool pulled over their eyes. So it is a really interesting challenge because it didn't seem like it was people who were like, I don't care what those experts say. It was, well, I have X scientist over here who says this and that's the real guy, you know? So it was a really interesting experience to see that it's just sort of this like parallel world of evidence and expertise. Absolutely. And if you if you go to, you know, like conspiratorial thinking message boards, which I don't recommend, but if you do, you'll see so many people saying, do your own research, right? And it's it's all about critical thinking and putting things together for yourself. And they they are very much about they're talking about evidence, they're talking about expertise, they're talking about you know, being critical of authority, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? You know, there is reason to be critical of authority. Authority has screwed us over in a lot of instances in history, right? We need to have some of that. But it, it very much does feel like critical thinking. And I think that this is this is something we've done. So, you know, if you think about like the way that Aristotle thought about different different ways of persuading people, right? There's logos, which is like logic and, you know, evidence and things like that, facts. Um, there's ethos, which is kind of like morality and things like that. And then there's pathos, which is emotional appeals. And I feel like over time, we as a society have kind of decided that what we care about is evidence, which is good. I think that that is a good way to make decisions. But I think a negative side effect of that is that people think that that's the only way that they can persuade people. And then they don't care or they are willing to accept bad facts, if the only thing that they can present to you to persuade you is facts, then they're willing to accept bad facts to do that. Whereas in the past, maybe they would have just said like, I don't know, my gut says X. But now they have to have, like you said, they have their own experts, they have their own evidence. I think this there's this weird negative consequence of wanting things to be more evidence based has actually made that information well more polluted because people think that that's the only thing that they can rely on. I have no evidence of this whatsoever. This is just my pet theory. Well, it's an interesting theory because you've been talking about how people crave evidence and crave certainty. And I think as much as we like to think of ourselves as sort of evidence driven, often we're persuaded by the other things that you've been talking about, you know, pathos, morality, identity, um, things like that, gut feelings, whatever it is, instinct, social cues and pressures. And it seems like maybe part of the problem is that we're persuaded by those things often, and then we have to manufacture evidence. People who are involved in misinformation have to manufacture evidence so that they can kind of feel good about the conclusions that they've drawn or have something that they, feels rational to point to. Do you think that's part of what's going on? Absolutely. Well, I like this. I like this nuanced take because a lot of times, to be honest, sort of the misinformation discussions I see is like, this is misinformation. And we all know that it's misinformation. And look at these people over here. But I don't think it's always quite as clear cut as that. But um, given what you've said, what are some ways that people can identify misinformation online? So when you say identify misinformation, you mean like me as a consumer, how can I identify yeah, yeah. Like if I'm browsing Twitter and I see something, what are some sort of ways that I can say this is probably misinformation? Right. So I think one red flag is anything that evokes an emotional reaction, you should be immediately skeptical of. So think about like, why is someone trying to get your emotions up, right? Why are they trying to make you angry? Why are they trying to make you 
sad or anxious or, you know, especially negative emotions, right, can be particularly mobilizing. Any information that's attached to that, or as we've already talked about, any information that's attached to kind of reinforcing a particular identity, I think I would be more skeptical of. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that maybe that's the information that you want to kind of double check on your own. And that's the other thing I'd say is, you know, you don't have to check everything online. This is not a full-time job for any person, right? If you're not a journalist, this is not your job. But I would say before you share information with someone else, I do think that it is incumbent on you to make sure that to the best of your knowledge, it's accurate. And the best way to do that is what kind of educational psychologists call vertical reading. So instead of looking within the information, going completely to another browser tab, right? Opening another browser tab and looking for either that piece of information. So searching for some keywords and seeing if you can find more information on it. One thing that I do all the time, because there's such a huge fact checking community now around the world is if if something seems a little sketchy to me, or I'm not sure if it's true or not, I'll just put the information into a browser tab and add the word fact check. And I would say, you know, over half the time, somebody's already done the work for me. And then I can just read all of the stuff that they've written about it and figure out, you know, is this true or is this not true? So I think that's a really easy way to do it, to get more information really quickly without, you know, investing your whole life in this. Because again, like that's not your, that's not your job. That's not your responsibility. It sounds like part of the problem is that we need to be the most skeptical and careful in moments when we're least capable of doing that, like when our emotions are aroused or when our identities and our preconceived ideas are being confirmed, which is something that our brains really like to happen. So we really need to be on our guard, but we're kind of least capable of being on our guard in those situations. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that is the hard thing is kind of retraining yourself so that instead of acting on your emotions, you're becoming skeptical of your own emotions and saying, why did this upset me? What am I going to do to figure out if this is true or not? And kind of removing yourself one step away from from that kind of emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And then you've done a lot of work on sort of the other side of the coin, which is, you know, effectively correcting misinformation, because that's really hard to do once people get in, into these states. We've all seen someone who just can't be sort of talked out of misinformation that they hold. But you've done a lot of work on kind of correcting this or or working with people who are in that state. What kinds of strategies have turned out to be promising or effective? Yeah. So the number one thing that my work suggests is, and I think this is just kind of a, a viewpoint shift, is don't think about correcting the person that's actually wrong on the internet, right? So this, this is a, a classic thing that you're trying to actually fix that person. And like you said, that's really hard to do. So for all the reasons we've already talked about, once people are committed to a particular idea or way of thinking about things, it's going to be hard to change that perspective. What doing this online means is that you're, you're still worried about that person, but you're probably not going to convince that person. But doing it online means that there are lots of other people that might see your correction. And so think about the impact that you're having on those people, not just on the person that you probably won't successfully correct. You know, one way to think about this is if I don't do anything, if I see somebody that I know is wrong or I look it up and I find out that that person, you know, is sharing information that's not accurate, I can leave it there. And then everyone else that sees it will see this kind of unchallenged piece of information and they probably won't look it up because who has time and they might be persuaded by that. 
Whereas if I know it's not true or I find out it's not true and I post a response to that and I say, hey, you know, you don't have to be rude. You don't have to be confrontational. You can just say, you know, I didn't know if this was true or not. So I looked it up and it turns out, you know, X, Y, and Z. And here's a link if you want to learn more. Then people that are viewing that exchange see, you know, two equally positioned viewpoints, which means they're much less likely to be persuaded by the original misinformation because they're seeing a challenge to it. And particularly if you do that really well, which I'll talk about a, a few best practices for doing that, if you provide a stronger viewpoint than the original misinformation, then you, according to my research, you're actually going to win over most people, right? So you're going to shift misperceptions away from the misinformation and towards the accurate information. Okay, so the audience for the correction is not the person necessarily that posted it. It's everybody else who is maybe on the fence or could be sort of captured by the misinformation as well. And that's really who the fact check is directed at. Exactly. And on social media, sometimes that's hundreds or even thousands of people that can see that. It can definitely scale. That's helpful because sometimes it feels like correcting misinformation is a futile practice. But it sounds like when you do it well, and especially when you target other people besides the poster of the misinformation, that you actually can make some progress. So what are some of the best practices for correcting misinformation well online? Yeah. So number one, uh, the most important thing I'll say is link to some kind of credible information. People always ask me when I tell them that what counts as credible. And that's tricky because it's different for every person. But essentially, you want to give people, number one, a cue that you know what you're talking about. So a lot of it is just like asserting a confidence, right? It's, it's a way of backing up that, that you've done your research and you know what you're talking about. And number two, a way to learn more if they want to. So giving them a link to, the, you know, the CDC or the WHO if you're dealing with health issues or, you know, the Census Bureau if you're dealing with you know, demographics or something along those lines. It doesn't have to be a government organization. Obviously, there are lots of other credible organizations that you could link to, too. Or if you've looked up one of those fact checks that I was saying before, just linking to a fact check, which has a lot of other evidence that they will, you know, then link to as well is also a great option. So linking to a media article, linking to uh, a credible piece of, of information, all of those are great options to kind of reinforce that you know what you're talking about and give them that option to read more if they're interested. The second thing that a lot of correction research finds is you want to provide some kind of alternative explanation to the misinformation. So don't just say, this is wrong, and leave it at that. Say, you know, this is wrong, and it turns out, you know, I thought that this was true, but actually this other thing is true. So giving them some something else they can replace that knowledge hole in their head with, that kind of, you know, fills out that story, so that when they're talking about it with a friend later, and they say, oh, I just learned blah, 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 they're not just saying, I learned that this thing is wrong, they're saying, I learned that this thing is true. So saying, you know, the opposite of it. So that's the second thing I would say. The third thing is repetition, which can be difficult to do within kind of a post, within your own post. Uh, the way that we see this manifest on social media a lot is even if you've seen someone else already say that something is misinformation, don't be afraid to chime in and also say that. So that's just going to give more credibility to the kind of, you know, accurate side of the, the ledger, if you will, and make that more persuasive to anybody that's seeing the exchange. So, you know, it's like, well, one person said this was true, but two people said that it was false. So I guess I'm going to listen to the two people. So providing that 
good information is kind of harkening back to that idea that you offered earlier that people really need information they crave information so if you're offering them something to replace the misinformation it's like you're not just taking something away but you're giving something back in the process yes exactly sometimes it seems kind of rude to pile on right somebody's shared misinformation and then like you know you don't want to be like the third person to be like oh yeah i also think that you're full of shit but it actually from a, from a psychological point of view it's, it's a good thing to do to kind of get that repetition in and then the last thing is not as actionable, but our research suggests that you have an easier time correcting people if the misinformation is kind of new. So before it's kind of ingrained in their mind, before they've kind of learned to associate it with some important identity or something along those lines, the earlier you kind of catch it, the more malleable people's opinions are. So that can be important. And again, there, there's not so much you can do about that because it really depends on the context in which you're seeing the misinformation. So that's that's not necessarily a thing for everyday users as much as it is for, you know, kind of expert organizations that are figuring out which misinformation to correct. There is a little bit more ability to get people to change their minds the earlier you catch them. That's interesting because, again, you sort of see the hesitancy like, oh, this, say, fringe QAnon theory, let's just ignore that. Um, but you're saying kind of the sooner you sort of get on it, the less likely it is to sort of capture people's imagination and they get entrenched in sort of the, the bad information. Yeah. And it's really tricky to know exactly where that line is because you definitely don't want to amplify misinformation that otherwise wouldn't get traction. So you have to kind of wait until like right when it hits that tipping point of like, oh, I think people are actually starting to buy this, you know, or or a lot. I'm seeing this a lot. You know, we, we need to weigh in on it. Whereas, you know, the super fringy stuff, it probably is best to just leave it alone and ignore it and hope it goes away. Yeah. That's interesting because, again, you sort of see the hesitancy like, oh, this, say, fringe QAnon theory. Let's just ignore that. Um, but you're saying kind of the sooner you sort of get on it, the less likely it is to sort of capture people's imagination and they get entrenched in sort of the, the bad information. Yes, exactly. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate this. I enjoy talking with you about misinformation and some of the ways that we can uh, can engage with it. Likewise, thanks for the great questions. Our first two guests really give us a sense of the scope of the misinformation problem. And honestly, listening to them and others, it really seems like misinformation is almost kind of a disease. In fact, the WHO announced in 2020 that we were dealing with an infodemic, a glut of misinformation, alongside the actual pandemic of COVID-19. But my next guest actually argues that misinformation moves through Twitter following the same models that an actual infectious disease would follow. My name is Mariam Aleki. I'm a PhD candidate in systems engineering at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. I'm doing research under Dr. Nathan Agarwal's supervision. I joined his group, which the name is Cosmos, two years ago, and I'm doing research in different aspects of social media analysis, misinformation, disinformation, and access. I want to thank my advisor, Dr. Agarwal, and Dr. Mead that helped me to do this research and some other research in this field. I also want to thank our founders that support us financially to make this research possible. I really enjoy getting Maleki's perspective on how misinformation moves on Twitter, and I think that you'll find it really intriguing.
Welcome to the podcast. I really am happy to have you here uh, to talk about this really interesting aspect of research um, regarding misinformation on social media. And, you know, the article that I asked you to talk about today, it takes as a case study some misinformation on Twitter that was about the Black Lives Matter protests. So can you first just kind of set the scene for us? What was this misinformation case that you were studying? The focus of this research was to analyze a specific misinformation item regarding the civil unrest that happened in Washington, D.C. in 2020. This event was the culmination of the Black Lives Matter protest that sprouted due to the death of George Floyd. And there was a widespread misinformation campaign regarding a communication outage that supposedly happened on Monday, June 1st, 2020. This was completely misinformation. Never this thing happened, but yes, it's uh, spread during Twitter. And this was propagated using the hashtag DC Blackout by different users across US on Twitter. So people said th- there was a big blackout that was caused by Black Lives Matter protests, but was th- there was no blackout? Is that right? Yes. Okay. So j- just there was no blackout <laughs> at all. I think there was something that I saw in the article, if I'm remembering this right, that there were like photos that were from like a TV show that were, and people said like, this is what's going on in DC right now. It was that part of it too. Yeah. Okay. But it was from a TV show. It wasn't real. Although it was misinformation, this campaign was successful to spread this misinformation across Twitter and across the US. Okay, so we've got this situation where people have really just made something up and then posted it on Twitter under this hashtag, and it's spreading all over the US. People are saying, look at what's going on because of these protests. So your decision was to use to study misinformation with this epidemiological model. And so this kind of treats misinformation almost like a contagious disease. Is that right? Yes. Okay, great. Can you tell me, I'm really fascinated by this model. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? In this research and some other current work, we are applying epidemiological model. And the framework of this model is dividing the population into different compartments. We have different epidemiological model, SIR, SIS, and some others. In this research, we applied SEIZ epidemiological model. As it's clear from the name, it has four different compartments, susceptible, exposed, infected, and skeptic. When we are talking about disease, infected person is a person who has the disease or the infection. And susceptible are people who are in contact with those infected people and are at the risk of getting infected. So if we are talking about news, information, misinformation, rumor, whatever, any kind of news and information, in our case, which was misinformation, infected person is a person who tweeted about a misinformation. And susceptible are people who follow that person and are at the risk of knowing about that misinformation. So this is infected and susceptible. What is exposed? Exposed are people who see the misinformation, but 
don't tweet or don't retweet or do any reaction immediately. They need some time to see, maybe it's not correct. Maybe I need more time to evaluate it and then start tweeting about it. Or maybe they never tweet. And skeptic are people who see the misinformation, but they think, no, it's not correct. Or I don't care. I don't want to do any reaction. So what we did in this research was that applied this model to our data to see if we can predict the trend of infected people by this epidemiological model or not. Okay, great. So you've got this model where you kind of break people into these groups and how they're going to respond. Is this a model that you adapted directly from epidemiology or it comes from sort of the study of physical disease? Is that right? It's exactly what is for physical disease, exactly like flu or some other disease. Okay, so you've got this model to apply to this case study. What did you find when you applied the model? The finding of this study showed that misinformation spreads during Twitter with the same trend and with the same manner as disease spread. We got an error of even less than 2% between the actual data and the fitted model, fitted eye compartment of this SEIC model. It was just 2% error. 2% error is very low. It means there are similarities between the spread of misinformation on Twitter and the spread of disease in a community. Interesting. So we all got more familiar with epidemiological models in the last year and a half or so. So what does this tell us? What what can we conclude from sort of this, the way that misinformation spread in this case? When we study epidemiological model, we can find a mathematical model. This mathematical model gives us some parameters and some trends. These parameters are like contact rate between people or the probability that people transfer from one compartment to another compartment. And also, what is the trend of this spreading? This information can help policymakers or politic administrators or whoever is working in this field to predict the trend and to see, okay, we are studying today. What is going to be tomorrow? What is next week? What is next month? So they can predict and they can stop it. They can find the good policies and solution to control them if they cannot stop, but at least they can control them. So are there... To continue our metaphor, like, are there sort of like vaccines for misinformation? You know, what is there if we're treating this kind of like a disease? Is there a treatment? Is there a vaccine? Is there a face mask for the spread of misinformation? Actually, it's a very great question. I like it. About the policies, I'm not expert in this field, but for sure, when we have a mathematical model for a phenomena, when we know how it's going to spread, we can find a good solution for it. I haven't started finding good solutions yet, but it's in my next step and future work. But it's a very good 
actually idea. I, I should think about a vaccine. Okay, what is vaccine for this misinformation? <laughs> sure, right. Yeah, how does it how do you stop this from spreading? Well, it's just to kind of even see how it moves is helpful. And and it sounds like you're going to apply this same model to some other case studies of misinformation, is that right? Yes, I published another paper which we applied epidemiological model about the misinformation and legitimate information about COVID-19 in three different campaigns, face masks, lockdown, and vaccine. And we could find a very good predictive models and good formulation for them. Also, something else that I've done in another paper was applying epidemiological model in the spreading of toxicity like how toxic word can spread during the Twitter or some other social media. Actually, the finding was so interesting for myself because we could find very good error. And actually, it was more precise than misinformation. It was so interesting for me. Really? So tell me just real briefly about that finding. What, what did you find with that one? We applied epidemiological model in four different data sets. One of them was F-U-C-K masks. Another one was F-U-C-K lockdown, F-U-C-K vaccine, and F-COVID. So we collected this data during whole year 2020 to see how is the trend of spreading this toxic information. For sure, they are toxic. There is no doubt that it's toxic. It may lead people to not believe in mask or vaccine and just have bad effect on people's health. Yeah, when we applied epidemiological model in those data sets, we could find a good mathematical model for them. So now we can predict the next trend of this phenomena. And this epidemiological model was successful. So we can say, yes, toxicity is contagious like a disease. Mm -hmm. That I like that as a as a sort of takeaway. So what do you mean by toxicity? You mean the literal effect on people's health or sort of the, the potency of the information? No, no. I'm just talking about the trend of spreading. Let, let's say this. Toxic hashtags spreads on Twitter like a disease. Great. So this is, I have one more question and this might be, sort of beyond what you want to speculate about. But, you know, when we're talking about a disease and how it spreads, you know, people's behavior matters, but the disease is doing things too. Does this kind of suggest that misinformation almost sort of has like its own potency or something, you know, beyond sort of like it, it kind of makes it feel like people only have so much control over the way misinformation spreads, like individual actors. Do you think that there's any sort of implication for that? Or is that maybe beyond what you want to speculate? When we understand that misinformation is contagious, we should be more careful because when a virus enters to a community, you don't have any control over it. It can influence so many people. So we should know that we as a people, as a users, should be careful about any kind of news that we hear. And before spreading it, we should see, okay, let me make sure if it's true or not. If it's not, maybe it's, it can affect other people 
like a disease. I don't know if I could answer your question, Craig, or not. No, that that sounds good. You know, I I wasn't quite sure what I was getting at there, except sort of what you're talking about is like it it can kind of spread and and can get out of our control. Like that seems like that's sort of what you're getting at with misinformation is that it's very easy for things to get out of control. Yes, exactly. And it's kind of hard to contain an outbreak once it's happened. Exactly. So it's not as easy. Okay, I didn't do anything. I just retweeted a news. But it's not just just a retweet. Maybe your followers and people see that and it starts to grow like a virus and like an infection in society, in social media. That's fascinating. It's a really interesting mathematical model and kind of metaphor for looking at how misinformation spreads. So I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about it. This is really interesting. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this special extended episode. Again, I want to thank Dr. Charles Woods for getting this whole big rhetorical podcast carnival together. And I really want to encourage you to listen to as many of the big rhetorical podcast carnival episodes as you possibly can. Thanks for listening to this one.